Vedna is uh, uh, the Pali word for feelings. And in the Mindfulness Sutta, the Sutta called the Foundations of Mindfulness, which is the uh, sermon in the Pali Canon uh, from which the practice of mindfulness is taken, it, uh, it, says, uh, it says the following. It says in the beginning, this is the sure way for the end of grief and lamentation. And so I want really what we're going to talk about for the rest of this morning is the sure way of the end of grief and lamentation and is there or what do you know about that? But the sure way of end of grief and lamentation, the Buddha said, is paying attention. And paying attention, he um, went on to say, could be done in four realms of experience. The first realm of experience is paying attention to body sensations, paying attention to this form body. So as we sat this morning earlier, and we paid attention to uh, the sense of the body and the breath within the body, that was really practice in the first foundation of mindfulness. And when people talk about practicing mindfulness, and often people haven't practiced enough say, oh yes, I remember mindfulness, that's where you bring the attention to the breath. It's breath meditation. It's actually not. It's awareness meditation. And what we really are cultivating is the capacity to pay attention, not the capacity specifically to pay attention to the breath, although that's one of the things we could pay attention to. And often it's the first thing that we pay attention to because it's, it's um, always present and everybody's breathing. And by bringing attention to the breath, it often slows the breath and calms the breath, which makes the whole body calmer. So it makes a lot of sense to start with breath, but it's not about breath, it's about attention. And so the first foundation of mindfulness in that sermon is the meditator brings the attention to the breath, sits down. Uh, I think it actually says sits down against a tree, cross-legged against a tree. Actually, do you remember? I think so. Uh, so we are sitting down in any form that we want uh, and brings the attention to the body and the breath within the body, which is what we did, and let the attention rest with that. It then goes on to say, the meditator then brings the attention to the quality of Vedana, which means feeling tone. And often we think of feelings as uh, emotional states. We say, he hurt my feelings. Or, uh, I was feeling very blue. I was feeling sad. I was feeling angry. I was feeling, what? Humiliated. Uh, I was feeling excited. I was feeling happy. What else do you feel? There's a list somewhere, I think, of 52 feelings in, the, uh, in, one, of the, in one of the Abhidhamma teachings. I have to get that list and I'll bring it. But Vedna actually doesn't mean uh, the emotion of the moment. It means whether the moment is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And it's a specific reason. It's not because the Buddhists don't have feelings or that they don't know about emotions, but it actually has to do with the teaching about clinging to uh, moments of experience or struggling with moments of experience. Because when moments of experience are pleasant, there's a movement in the mind that says, ah, pleasant moment. This is great, you know. Hope it lasts. That just is a subtle movement, or this is okay, phew. This is pleasant, I like this. There's a, a little movement in the mind around the awareness that it's pleasant, sometimes very subtle, uh, but nevertheless, it's something to be noticed. And there's a movement in the mind around unpleasant, like, may this be finished, like, uh-oh, my foot is falling asleep, or uh, I wonder how long I'm sitting here, I wonder when the bell is going to ring, I wonder why we're sitting so long. I wonder why I came this morning. I should have taken a walk and come in at seven, at 10 o'clock just for the talk. Sitting is not my thing. You know, there's a whole way in which the mind can do a whole, in a second, a whole story around what's the sensation of the moment. And the third feeling is a feeling of um, uh, neutral. When things are neutral, we tend not to pay such good attention to them. 
Well, that's a nothing moment. Okay, nothing, nothing good. What's on the horizon? What's you know, something coming up that I should be on the lookout for? Ah, there comes a good feeling. There comes a bad feeling. Or just falling asleep, nothing to do here. You know, it's like uh, the computer, when I'm not busy putting stuff into it, after a while it turns itself off. There's nothing much happening here. So, you know, it, you know uh, so everything goes away. You know, that nice time to take a nap now, nothing. So the, the teaching around that is not that we should meet every moment exactly the same, but to notice that the heart moves in a certain way when it's pleasant and a certain way when it's unpleasant and behaves in another way when it's neutral, just to know about that because there's something to learn around that. And that's where I want to start in a minute. Let me, for the sake of finishing that foundation of mindfulness discussion, tell you the two others. And then we have to eat because you have this in your hand. And you're probably thinking, when are we going to eat this? <laughs> Especially if it looks good for it to you. So it's also interesting to see that the mind can be doing that. Mm -hmm. When are we going to eat this? Sometimes when we're on retreat, I tell people, when you come down to lunch, uh, just practice as part of your eating meditation. Put stuff on the fork and bring it halfway up and then put it down again. And the mind says, what are you doing? And even it's going to be there the next moment, you know, but just to watch. So just to, for the sake of the four foundations so you know them, My, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of mind states, and here is where it comes more the, the, the texture of mind states, the emotional uh, um, climate of the mind, so it's possible to be, think, to be aware. Mind is full of peace. No peace in my mind. Mind is full of lust. Now there's less lust. Oh, now the lust has disappeared. Mind at this moment full of anger. Now the anger disappeared. That's the coming and going of the climates of the mind Mostly the coming and going of them is what we were really meant to connect with. The pain of certain mind states while they're there, because that conditions uh, non-identification with them, so we don't hold on to them and struggle with them. You see, they're empty. They're just there. They're painful, but they're empty. And if you don't struggle with them, they go away by themselves. And so the mind gets more easy about letting them go. It's another thing that I want to tell you about and talk about, but we need to eat what's in the hand. And the fourth of those of the foundations is the realm of uh, what's called the realm of the Dharma, which is not the body or the feeling tone or the climate of the mind, but the way in which in a moment we really begin to see whole constellations of how things are. So it's the realm of truth or the realm of understanding. And there'll be a moment in which there's an absolute clear awareness of the coming and goingness of things. Maybe the breath comes and goes, and there's a moment in which absolutely viscerally you know that breath will never happen again. Or absolutely viscerally you know the endings of things, things end. Or absolutely there's a moment in which the mind has been struggling with something, and then it unstruggles, and you know that peace is possible. There's an absolute getting of the third noble truth. Nobody convinced you of it. You knew it. And then you can't not know it ever. So it's an absolute knowing of the four noble truths, of the three insights. It's an absolute understanding of the different presence or absence of the seven factors of enlightenment and how they work together and how they balance in the mind. It's really the realm of how things get put together how we construct everything that we then see as our life and understand as our life. The Buddha went on to say that we could do that if we paid attention to the body or feelings or the climate of the mind or the way things are hung together, moment to moment, with balanced awareness, for seven days, we would be complete, we would be... Uh, automatically sure that we would never again be confused in this lifetime. It's a very great thing to think about when you go on retreat. You know, <laughs> I like to tell people that when we have 28 days in the beginning, say, look, 28 days, you could even mess up a few moments. <laughs> and then, 
And then when you get up to seven days, they say, look, seven days. Just make a big effort from now. I get excited. I get excited in this moment telling you about it. I mean, isn't that a great promise? You know, If someone told you, starting now, ready, set, go, seven days, free, would you do it? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Would you try? Yeah, sure do it. You want to eat what's in your hand? Tell you what, just before you eat it. <laughs> oh, this is mine. Thank you very much. Everybody's got something? So before you eat it, um, look at it. You notice also, I, you know, I can smell what's in my hand. So, so you smell, you start to salivate. If you bring it up, you smell it. And you notice how the body is just really interesting, you know, isn't it? It knows what to do. It salivates in advance. Mind tells you, put it in your mouth. <laughs> if you can, if, if you can, you may not be able to, given what you've got. If you can put it on your tongue and not chew it for a minute and close your mouth and feel it and then chew it, close your eyes, see what your experience is. Pleasant to eat quietly with people, isn't it? It's a wonder that we talk as much as we do when we eat. What did you, what was your experience? Anybody never did eating meditation before then? Whose first eating meditation was it? How was that, Robin? It was delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I often think on retreat that it's the most... Uh, it's the biggest moment of possibility in the day for insight, because seriously, because you're really awake. Nobody is has like foggy mind when they're going in to eat because everybody's hungry, and it's like so much stimuli. It's like a million times more stimuli than any other moment in the day, and the food is good. We're hungry. It's a million things. Like, what did you notice? Yeah. What I noticed is, I think I just usually shovel food in. Mm -hmm. Because the experience of first putting it in my mouth and experiencing the texture and the taste, and then eating it, I, I'm not even sure I've even noticed that. Maybe, maybe sometime in my life. But then, 
aftertaste when I waited before I put something else in my mouth, uh. after it was gone from my mouth, than to experience what was left in my mouth mm -hmm. afterwards. Incredibly sensual, mm -hmm. and um, I know I'm going to lose weight if I do this. <laughs> <laughs> Susan. I, I realize how quickly I eat. I mean that I'm sitting in this, and um, when I first looked at it, oh, that's such a tiny piece. <laughs> I probably, you know, would have like taken it in one mouthful, and it's just amazing. I mean, it was really delicious, and really, it was like truly experiencing it. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed about all these years. <laughs> I hope I can do it in the future. Ah. Rona. Um, I realized that I never thought about my teeth very much before, and how miraculous they are. I mean, how amazing! I, mean, I just was feeling really so grateful that I have teeth, and that the, you know the amazing job that they do. Uh -huh. <laughs> they do. I, I, I actually, uh, sometimes when people start to do this, they start to pay attention to how it is that we chew. We chew, and our tongue pushes a food around. And why we swallow when we swallow? Why don't we swallow before that or after that? You never think about why you swallow, do you? Chew, 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 swallow. You know, what else did you notice? Yeah. <laughs> What's your name? Susan. Susan, I'll try to learn that. Okay. Robin. Uh, I was also thinking of not only how delicious it was, but I was thinking of the generosity of uh, Celia for making the wonderful stuff. Oh. <laughs> I couldn't keep my hands off. Uh -huh. <laughs> the, there's a lovely quote from the Buddha, thank you very much, that said um, something. Uh, 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 this was an admonition. Uh, well, when we realize the joy of generosity, we would never take another meal without sharing it with somebody. So it's the joy of receiving, but also the joy of giving. It's really... Well, the interesting thing is, when we were in a small group, Celia said she made all these scones because she wasn't sure how many people we would be in the small group, and she wanted to be sure everybody had one. And yet, it went in eight. And fed the whole group <laughs> in ecstasy. I, it's amazing what, how far food can go. I think there's some very important religious stories. <laughs> 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 what else? <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you very much, David. I'll try to learn your name as well. You know, one of the things that uh, uh, that uh, uh, the Buddha taught was about the difficulty of comparing mind. He said, we are always finding somebody, there's always somebody who's doing something we imagine better than us, and also somebody that we are then flattering ourselves that we're doing it better than. And that, that the mind just is always looking for, not looking for, but naturally sort of, so, oh, marks ourselves up or down, up or down. And how tiresome that is, he said, you know. That if we could just be content in how our own stuff is unfolding without having our little voice that is just making a problem with its judging and comparing. I guess the, I, actually, the, I keep thinking the line is James's, but the line is the third Zen patriarch says something like, the tedious practice of judging and comparing fatigues the mind and ultimately is fruitless or futile or something. The tedious practice of judging and comparing fatigues the mind towards no, uh, to no avail, something like that. And my friend James, who found himself comparing and judging all the time, said he spent a whole retreat 
Every time he found his mind making a judgment like that, he would repeat to himself, the tedious practice of judging and comparing <laughs> fatigues the mind to no avail. <laughs> he said, actually, it did him a lot of good in stopping the judging because it was so fatiguing <laughs> to be saying that to himself all the time. But thank you very much for noticing that the mind gets completely a mind of its own. It's just off and running. What else? And then when it got down and I thought, oh, I shouldn't have done that because somebody else might not have taken a scone and they needed an orange. Yeah. And then it got, I saw the bowl go to your thing and there was still something in it. And I went, gee, I hope there's something left in that bowl. And I hope Sylvia picked out something. <laughs> and and it, as it turned out, you did have something, which I was grateful. And then I felt guilty about taking the second thing. Well, you know, Elizabeth, it is Elizabeth, Elizabeth. Um, I re re recently realized, I think it was in this year, when I realized the, that, that my mind did that sort of stuff, that it was worrying, not good enough, not good enough, uh-oh, shouldn't have done that, shouldn't have done that, that it's got um, a moral inventory factor that's quite active in it. I decided that I that, uh that I was glad of that, you know, that it's there, I thought, because uh, it's, it's, it's very busy all the time. It's doing a, a Google search all the time, if not good enough. <laughs> but, uh, but I decided that I, I, took the, I took its being there. Is it there for you? Do you watch it mostly? I mean, I'm looking to meet people who say, nah, it doesn't give me any trouble at all. But, and maybe this is a self-selecting group of people whose, you know, moral inventory is always active. But I think it's doing that thing because as it, the fact that it does that is, I think, a proof that we actually are compassionate beings and that we're actually happy -er and happy-est when we're taking care of other people. Not because we, it makes us saintly, but because we feel good when we're doing that. I actually think we feel good because it takes us out of ourselves. And I think that that's really the prison that we don't want to be stuck in. This prison of self-preoccupation and self-absorption and you know, interest only in myself. If I get interested in other people, my life has meaning, my life is energized, my life is interesting, I've got a purpose, I've got something to do. I am a very limited object of attention. You know, that, that. <laughs> so I decided that that moral inventory, annoying as it sometimes is, um, really is a sign that we really have good hearts. What else did you discover? Yeah. As I slowed down and, and actually tasted the food and, and uh, savored it, I realized that eating meditation is like a microcosm of life. It's like I hurry up to get to the next thing and get it over, so I never really taste or feel and savor what's going on in the moment. And I think of people watching TV and reading the newspaper while they're eating. They never taste their food. They, they couldn't tell you what's on the plate. Uh, and that's the way life ends up being. Yeah. Uh, uh, I keep thinking Dick, but not sure. What's your name? Jerry. Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. Okay, I won't make, I will try to remember that now. What else? Yeah. I know the sound, like I could hear everybody else chewing, and I enjoyed that. It made me want to laugh out loud because it felt like that community of us all doing the same thing together. But at the same time, I could hear my 12-year-old say, don't smack mom. <laughs> 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 That's her favorite line to me lately. <laughs> but I definitely was enjoying hearing everybody else eating. Yeah. What's your name? Joan. Joan. So he, there's a very important lesson in what Joan is saying because in on retreats, people often report on other people's eating. I mean, there's not a lot to report about. <laughs> people will say, people will say, I sat next to. But it, the, really, the report is a report on their own heart. 
because they'll say, you know, I just admire so and so so much. I just, I've, as a matter of fact, I've actually fallen in love with that person. If you want to know, but and I sat next to them at tea yesterday, and I could hear them chewing away, and I thought, this is a wonderful person has such zestful life. You can really see, enjoys it tremendously. But they actually are in love with that person to begin with. So the smacking is is a sign of you know a zestful living. And then the same another person will come in and say, the person gets on my nerves so badly, takes off their shoes in a noisy way. Sat next to them at tea yesterday. They made so much noise with the chewing can see they should know in a place like this you're not supposed to make noise while you chew and you can see that all of our judgments come out of our own place you know I have walked into many times into the dining room at tea time when I am not in a good place in my own heart you look around and say this is a weird place look at everybody everybody looks like they've lost it you know they're just sort of sitting there and I come back the next day having had a different, in a different relationship to my own heart, and everybody looks like an angel, like a saint sitting there. You think, this is amazing. People come and they just try so hard, they work so hard to develop their heart, and I'm absolutely in love with everybody. And you see that nothing happens out there. It all happens in here. It completely all happens in here. Is this a new baby that we have or one? That's not Eva. Eva was over there this morning. It's a new baby. Oh, okay. Well, this is, this is great. Will you stay with the new baby and can we meet it later on? Good. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to admit this, but since you just brought it up, <laughs> the, um, the sounds what drive, drove me crazy. So I didn't eat mine. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't do it, yeah. and um, that was my, you know, it wasn't a judgment against the group. I couldn't do it, yeah. and, you know, mm-hmm. that's sad. Well, <laughs> 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 well, now I'm not going to do it. <laughs> well, we learned two things then. Tell me your name again. Betsy. Betsy. Two Betsys. No, this is Betty. Okay. Um, there are two things at least that we learn. One is that everybody is absolutely different all the time. That's one of the things that I had in mind to talk about today. And how much we note not only how we are, but we make a judgment about how we are, that it's a good way to be or a bad way to be. And on the basis of that judgment, we feel either sad or uplifted. I've been thinking a lot about the stories that we tell. Maybe we talk a little bit about the difference between feelings and emotions and how emotions have to do with feelings. I've been thinking about that a lot. And I want you to think a little bit with me. I think we have a tremendous ability, I know, and I do anyway, to process feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, incredibly fast in certain circumstances. Happened to me the other day that I was meditating in the morning and I opened my eyes and right on the outside the window where I was sitting, not three feet from where I was sitting, in the crook of an oak tree, right in front of me, was dangling, looped in the dangling in that crook of the oak tree, was the back half, the back motionless half of a squirrel with its tail hanging straight down and its legs splayed out stiffly, just hanging there. And I knew he was dead. And my heart startled, my whole body startled, and I wished that he'd move. And I knocked on the window. I said, move. (laughs) I was just there. And I felt really bad, and I felt bad that it died. I felt bad that it died just in my line of view. <laughs> and then I began to think about how am I going to get it down out of the oak tree because it seemed incorrect to leave it just hanging there in my oak tree. And just then the squirrel leaped up. <laughs> and I felt this huge burst of gratitude 
and ran down the branch of the oak tree, the limb of the oak tree, and stopped at the bird feeder and tried to knock it over. (laughs) And I got mad. And I knocked on the window again. I said, get out of my... And I shouted at it, get out of my bird feeder. And, you know, then I laughed about it, just like you did. I did that all in less than a minute. You know, I, I, you know, I said that it died, and it's there, and it's stuck, and now I'm going to get down. And I'm so happy it's not, and get out of my bird feeder. And I went through it, and then I laughed about it. And then I went about my business, and I did other things. And I was thinking about it, because I thought, I could do that, because I, I don't have to take it, per- I don't have to. It's not personal to me, and it's a squirrel, and um, we have that ability. Remember I told you last week about uh, having had a phone call from my daughter about her friend's husband killed in in an automobile accident. I I particularly noticed the squirrel, because I realized on that day, I had a phone call. My daughter got the same, meditating in the morning, phone rings. So my daughter was very upset. She's just had the very sad news that a friend of hers was in an automobile accident and the friend's husband, also in the accident, had been killed. I know this woman since she was five years old. And I certainly, you know, feel through my child her pain and felt really badly about it. We talked about it and got off the phone and I got the news that someone else I knew had had a baby in the night. And also, it was a, a really good piece of news because she's an older mother and it's her first child, and it was a really great piece of news. And I was happy, so I called up somebody else about that piece of news to share it. And then I finished that conversation and I started to do my work for the day, whatever it was I was doing, maybe preparing to come here, maybe answering email and thinking about pleasant, unpleasant in the grandest sense. That had been a very big unpleasant and a very big pleasant. And then you look at the email, it's not neutral. It's most of it pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant. You know, you didn't do this. When are you going to send that? Can you send this? Uh, What should we do about this? Or good news in between. I heard this. Can we get together? But everything is a little bit of a challenge uh, in the email. So I'm doing away at my email. And all of a sudden I realize I'm really not completely here. I'm really not here. You know, the, a piece of my heart is six conversations earlier. You know, a piece of my heart got left behind. I finished with the squirrel. I finished with the squirrel. You know, it was done. I remembered it because it was so funny. And then I remembered it after this other morning. I remembered the, the, the squirrel because I thought the squirrel episode, I felt, ah, oh, and everything else and excited and but all those feelings went through me, ding, 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 and finished. Other things do not go through you, ding, 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 and finish. They stay. And so really what I've been thinking about is uh, what happens when they stay? Why do they stay? Is, it right? is, it, is there some other way? If we really paid attention, this is again... Um, Anybody who pays attention will come to the end of grief and lamentation. Been thinking about that. Been thinking about the things that afflict the heart. Uh, We normally think of the hindrances in Buddhism as the torments of the heart. We call them that. Uh, The hindrances are uh, the habits of mind that respond to experience either by wanting more of it or wanting less of it or not feeling up to dealing with it or being too uh, frightened and uh, agitated about it or by being hesitant about, can I deal with this? Five different uh, hindrances of mind, fancy words for it are um, lust, aversion, torpor, um, restlessness, and doubt. Um, so I think about those are the habits of mind that just seem to be the natural ways that people's minds react to challenge. We've often talked here about how people seem to have particular ways, like their personally most um, prominent way of responding to challenge. 
uh, a, fa a less fancy way of saying it would be, um, I fret easily, but I, I don't have such a short fuse. Some people get angry easily, so challenge makes them angry. Uh, challenge makes me frightened. I get fretful. Uh-oh, I won't be able to do this. Um, other people feel uh, undone by challenge. Ah, oh, this is not the wind out of me. I can't do anything now. I have to drop it. I can't do it. Let somebody else do it. I'm out of here. Uh-oh, I won't be able to. This is my fault. It's all gone wrong because I haven't chosen right. Or, uh-oh, what can I do to soothe myself, which would be the lust response to challenge. Those are all habits of mine. As, uh, are they new to people here? Most people know about them. When you think about them, when I said that to you, did you relate to one more than the other? Like, you'd say, yes, I'm a short fuse. Everybody here thinks they have short fuse, get irritated easily. Other people think they get worried easily. Mm -hmm. Worried is the most, I think. Uh, people, people actually think a lot about that um, habit of fretting, what if. People have a, a self-doubt habit. Uh-oh, I did it wrong. I think I did it wrong. It's my fault. Um, <laughs> all of the above. Uh, I think we all have all of the above. Uh, and that all of the above actually come into play in every moment of challenge and probably one or another more prominent. So we see that more than the other ones. But I think that they all come in because, in fact, if I, get, uh, if I get to fret about something, there's an element of aversion in there. I'm mad that it's caused me to fret. Um, I, I, I remember 20 years ago when my children were young enough to be coming home late and me worrying about it. The first thing I would be doing is worrying about where they are. And then I'd be angry about, you know, at them for causing me to worry. And then I'd be exhausted by the time they came home because I had worried so much and been angry. So that, you know, there's always like a, that it, one thing leads to another, leads to another. But I've been thinking about uh, the notion that the end of suffering is possible. And um, thinking about the different kinds of ways in which we suffer. If there aren't more afflictions that we should be thinking about, than the afflictions of the kilesas, of the hindrances. Because, it, and, and I'm not at all sure that this isn't part of Buddha's thought. I want to know whether it's part of your thought. Because I've been thinking about this, the habits of my mind are what I have most thought about when I've thought about the second noble truth. You know, the four noble truths is that life is suffering. It's really difficult. It's always challenging because it's changing. We get things in the best circumstances and everything just good. You know it's going to change. Not because of just for that, you know, ha, look, Sylvia's having a good time, now it gets messed up. I don't think it's a perverse universe. I think it's, it's actually a lawful universe and that things change and that conditions are always changing. And, you know, the, the most banal example of that, of course, is... is um, our, our soap operas, are, which I haven't seen in a long time, but my recollection is that when a segment ends by someone saying, now everything is perfect, I will never be unhappy again, <laughs> you know that after the break, after that commercial, something dire will happen. <laughs> and, uh, and when somebody says, I hate you so much, I never want to see you, you know that they will be you know, having some, you know, moving in together in six months as you <laughs> turn back on, that things change. But I don't, you know, people used to mock the soaps because of that, but I actually think those are a mirror of what's true in a life, and they're just the contemporary culture. They're not that much different from grand opera when you think about it, <laughs> oh, in terms of People meet each other and fall in love and out of love and in love and out of love and kill each other over it. And, uh, I think there are all ways of us to look at this as the human condition from the most you know, uh, widespread level of culture to different segments of culture. I've been thinking about that. I wonder if it isn't ways for us to practice how to be in relationship in the world. I've been thinking about that because it's hard to do it. Because I've been thinking about things that afflict the heart 
other than the habits of mind. So let's go back to the Four Noble Truths. Life is suffering. The cause of suffering, this is the important piece that I'm thinking about. The cause of suffering, the Second Noble Truth goes, is craving, is insisting that things be different. Things don't go your way, and you wanted them to. Why can't this happen, or why me? The third noble truth is that peace is possible. You could stop craving that it be different. You could say, this is the way it is. And the fourth noble truth is the list of practices. Right understanding, right aspiration, right speech, right action, right mind, uh, right uh, livelihood, right uh, effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, that... Um, help to undo those habits of mind that keep the mind craving. And what I'm thinking about particularly is uh, the notion that we are responsible for the suffering in the mind. I I remember, and I've I've said it here a lot, the line in in the movie Kundun, which is a uh, not fictionalized, but dramatized version of the life of the current Dalai Lama, There's a beautiful scene in which the young uh, Dalai Lama is being trained by his teachers. Um, And he's meant to be in that particular scene, probably five or six years old. He's little. And he's reciting the Four Noble Truths. And he says, life is suffering. And then he says, the cause of suffering is clinging. And they stop him. And they say, "Uh, not enough humility. And I thought maybe he had said it in an arrogant way. But it turns out that how he says it back is very important. He thinks about it for a minute, and then he says, I am responsible for most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind. So it's it's not a question of arrogance. It's a question of not taking it personally. So then I think, how much of our suffering is the responsibility of the habits of my mind? And how much does the heart suffer independent of the habits of my mind because of the traumas of life. I had a couple of thoughts in my mind. I was thinking about it yesterday morning because uh, I heard, uh, and you did too, about the the death, ultimately, of the two Iranian sisters Mm -hmm. after 50 hours of the best surgeons in the world. I was thinking about everything that everyone knew, that they had elected it, that they had wanted it, that they had decided it, that they knew that that was a possibility, that everything that takes form ultimately dies, that this could have happened, that everyone had the best intention, that everything that arises passes away. All the wisdom in the world, when their elder sister was given the news that they died, she fainted. And I thought to myself, you know, Sometimes the mind can't hold what happens. It's not a question of the habits of the mind. It's a question of the mind breaks. It turns off. Or the heart breaks. turns off. Can't do it. And everybody different, you know. When we went around this morning and um, Betsy said her experience, I really wanted to say, not only on the experience of that particular uh, experience that we did, But just in general, everyone is different. And everybody's ability to uh, uh, respond and recuperate from the traumas that happen to us in life. You know the line from from Hamlet, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Not everything happens to everybody. Everybody who gets born dies. But not everybody has the same life. Some people see, have a harder road to hoe than others because of the circumstances of their birth or the, their parents or their, the circumstances of their body and the circumstances of the world and the serendipity of it, just, just what happens, who they meet, who they don't meet, when they meet. The karma of our experience is incredible. And there's a way in which when I really understand karma, I am at least for a moment so liberated of thinking that I am responsible for what's going on 
So there's a great liberation about that. There's also a great, because I realize also that I'm quite impotent in terms of having any, making any impact in terms of how the world goes. And in those moments, I actually understand that everything is absolutely happening because of everything. Somebody said uh, before about, uh, uh, you say, well, you think of this, and you say, well, that happened. Well, that was because of that, because of that, because of that. And I have uh, very much in those moments of understanding karma, very much a billiard ball notion of how the world works. That something, you know, when you when you hit a billiard ball and it hits another ball and all balls fly in all directions and then all of those balls hit all other balls and then there's a there's a way in which i think uh, the the numbers of causes that impinge on anything happening are so enormous that the the web of that is so beyond what i can think about i think really there's nothing to do but to say and be in this moment and still when tremendous tragedy happens, there's a, there is um, a wounding to the heart that I don't know is balanced by any amount of knowledge. And that's actually what I, wanted, what I really have been thinking about, that I would make, in addition to the list of the things that afflict the heart, in addition to the habits of mind that continue to afflict the heart, my own cravings and aversions and habits of fretting. I think grief afflicts the heart. I think any kind of loss afflicts the heart. I think humiliation afflicts the heart. It's a loss anyway. It's a loss of face. It's a loss of a sense of how people think of us. It's a loss of our own sense of (coughs) self-worth. I think stress afflicts the heart, overwhelms. I think fear afflicts the heart. I'm thinking of what, if I were to think about what would be, what does it mean afflict the heart? How would you know if you said to someone, is your heart afflicted? How would that person know that their heart was afflicted? Uh, I feel like my heart is afflicted when I can't love. Mm-hmm. That um, the uh, the the um, potential of my heart is to love. And thinking about that, we come into the world with that. I'm not sure that we're ready to love. It's like if a great piano gets delivered to your house. It's a, it's a good piano, and uh, it's strung right, and it could play wonderfully, but someone has to come and tune it anyway, because it got banged around in the moving, and, you know. So someone has to tune it. It's not just the fact that it's a piano. And I think about the fact that we get born with these pianos, and uh, they get tuned by the experiences of our life. I think they get tuned by the experiences of our early life. But then I think they keep getting knocked out of tune by what happens, by the various kinds of afflictions that happen to it. It's just like a piano in your house. You have to call a piano tuner every six months and you know, just get it back into tune so it can play right. Have I missed any? If you had to make a list of, think about in your life, when are you not able to love? When we're frightened, when I'm tired? That's not a habit of mine. When I'm grieving. What else? Blaming. Hmm? Blaming. 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 Defensive. Stress. Stress. Defensive. Angry. Angry. But this can all be called back to the habits of mine. Well, a habit of mind could be that, that ha, blaming, maybe yes, because maybe. Grieving, even, even grieving is attached to craving. 
Well, you know, grieving is attached to craving. This is the piece that I was thinking about. But I'm not so sure about it being the same kind of sequence. So follow it through with me. I'll tell you how I thought about it. There's a very famous Zen story. Let's start with the Zen story, then we'll talk about our own stories. There's a very famous Zen story about a Zen master whose uh, child dies, whose son dies, and people come to pay their respects, and the Zen master is crying, disconsolate. And the students say, you know, we're really surprised to see this because you've talked so much about the fact that if everything that arises passes away and death is a normal part of life and everything comes to an end and there's a legitimate karma of things and you never know and uh, every uh, the the uh, the uh, the phrase from the Buddha is everything that is dear to us causes pain meaning to say you know once we take on something uh, one of my children said to me, you know, you have a baby, and everybody says, congratulations, great, wonderful, mazel tov. I said, nobody says, let you know that you have just about now mortgaged your life, your heart, for the rest of your life. So, <laughs> is that not true? <laughs> and it's worth it, so people will, you know, it's a, it's a good mortgage. It's got a very good return on it, but... but uh, but the end of the Zen master story is they say, you know, all these things, you know, you said this, this, and this. And he said, I did, and those are true. And I'm very sad. So is there a condition of the heart, independent of habit of mind, that is just, has the wind knocked out of it? You know, if I break my leg and they put it in a cast and I will heal, it will still hurt for a long time. Is there a condition of the heart that independent of knowing, and while it's hurting and it's in the cast, I know that, you know, a year from now I'll ride my bike again. Is there a condition of the heart similar to that, that even though you might know in your deepest wisdom that things arise and pass away and that this grief will not be as solid, as complete, and as permanent. And when a number of years go by and a number of birthdays go by or a number of whatever goes by, that it'll be different. Does it make the pain less now? No, but it makes it more bearable. No, it makes it more bearable. Can you think of something other than the grief, though? Because well, I really want us to think this through. Yeah. Betrayal. Betrayal. I'm trying to think about, in a sense, that's a tremendous loss, I suppose. It's a, it's a loss. Because I was thinking that there's a betrayal and then there's a story about the betrayal. I tell myself a little different between the, the thing and the story. But even if you take away the story, how could they? And you're left with the truth. They did. You know. And are there some truths that are just painful? Yeah. Susan, yeah? Yeah, what? Fear. Fear. So we can stop sounding so morbid sometimes. Hmm? If, you're immortal, if you're really, really, really happy, you can be completely blind to everything else going on around you. You know what? Tell me your name again. James. James. Uh, that's, a very, that's a very important thing to say. Um, the um, near enemy of mudita is, uh, in, uh, which I'll tell you about if you don't know in a minute, is exuberance uh, that, uh, in, in the classic scripture. Mudita is the, uh, the, the response of the heart that rejoices with other people, for other people, and their good fortune. Not with them even, for them. When you hear about somebody's good fortune, and you think, well, that's great for them. Look at that. Look what happened to those people. With no tinge of thinking, I wish that would happen to me also. I could use a little bit good fortune of that, or, you know, how come them, not me, or... Uh, 
I think that 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 more that envy is a little bit more um, problematic with wishing well, much more than uh, wanting people to have less joy. I don't think we normally want people to have less joy. People have joy in an area that I am not wanting joy. I'm pre- I'm. Aren't you excited about it? I mean, if somebody wins an Olympic uh, broad jump. You know, and they show um, her mother in the stands. And, you know, I'm thrilled for them that they did that. I never thought of broad jumping. You know, nobody I know broad jumps. I have no vested interest in broad jumps. So it's great for them that they did that. And I look at that mother, and I know those moments in which I have felt very proud of my children, so I know how she feels, even I don't know about broad jumps. Completely I'm happy for her. But the, and the scriptures say about that, um, that if you get, uh, if you let, if you allow yourself to become exuberant with happiness, you won't be in touch with, the, with, with, uh, with what's real in the world. It will put you too much out of touch with what's going on to be connected in a meaningful way. It's interesting. If you, we're talking about what causes the heart to love, I think that the heart loves in two, particular ways. I think it loves as a carer and it loves as a consoler. It wishes well and it wishes to hold up, I think. Uh, just that the, the, I think that when, when I'm thinking about my own responsive heart, I want it to be able to respond in what's needed. And I think of usually what's needed, if it's true that life is suffering, and I think it is, is consolation more than anything else. I think about that, by the way, when, when, when I'm more and more as I'm teaching metta, because we've always taught metta as permutations of benevolence, and I'm thinking of it more and more these days. And I, you know, I'm thinking all of a sudden I'm making such a big statement. It's Spirit Rock. The Buddha said it's out of metta. I'm actually thinking more it's out of karuna, it's out of compassion. That it's if we take the Buddha's view of the brokenness of the world then really it's out of compassion for the world that we wish people well. I mean, it's so hard to be a person and do a life and make it through and do it cheerfully. What were you going to say? I was just going to say that to add to the mystery of it, sometimes I think that it is a great grief or a great pain or a great fear that cracks the heart open to be able to love. Yeah. Yeah. What's your name? Leslie. Leslie, thank you. Thinking about what you said about getting stuck in a conversation, it was six conversations before that you're, and I, and I feel it. I, I carry something with me, yeah. So I'm here, but I'm still there, and I and I was. It, it's a kind of loss, but it's a, it's not like a big loss, like someone dies. <clears throat> it's when uh, loved ones suffer, and and I'm hearing what you're saying about consolation because my parents are both elderly now, and but they are still very vibrant but they're suffering physically in different ways and I find I'm very distracted by it I don't hardly ever leave it it's it's a conversation that's going on in the background of my mind no mm-hmm. what I'm doing mm-hmm. and so it's not so much a habit of mind it really is mm-hmm. about I think it's the compassion piece of not wanting to see them suffer mm-hmm. understanding it's part of growing old mm-hmm. but having it distracting mm-hmm. being a distraction Mm-hmm. See, that's how I think about the fact that we have wisdom and we also have the uh, bonds of the heart that connect us, that when they're severed, I think we suffer. Or when the other end of the bond is suffering, we suffer. Um, just as a mother would give her life to protect her one and only child is the line from the Metta Sutta. That doesn't mean we just know about it. It means that we respond in some way. What are we going to say, Lynn? Sylvia, would you walk through the mental heart process of compassion? The word, the concept, the, the action of compassion? <sighs> See, I think for myself... The, the 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 definition that's often given of compassion is the quivering of the heart in response to the awareness of pain, suffering. I think the fact that's important to me is the fact that the heart quivers at all. 
that it quivers in response to suffering, it quivers in response to pain, it quivers in response to other people's joy. It quivers in response, period. And that, I think, is the great good news, that we have quivering hearts, that uh, we have, can have this whole possibility of deep understanding um, that sees the great, as you said earlier, the great plan, the arising and passing away. And we have quivering hearts that respond um, just on a, 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 through empathy, because we intuit that other beings feel the way we do. When we say sentient beings, it's beings who feel. And we intuit about other beings that they... May all beings really recognize the profound capacity of consolation. to console and be consoled. That's the birthright of their human heart so that all beings everywhere come to the end of suffering. 